So just this past week, uh, my wife, um, she gets a plant every year. Uh, she gets what's called an amaryllis. It like, looks like an onion, basically. Um, and so she gets this little jar, a little bit of dirt, and this onion that she plops down. And it's every year. And she and her sisters and her mom all, all get these amaryllises. And they're so fascinating because um, they, they grow up surprisingly quick, but it's still plants. It's still a slow process. I think bamboo is like the only thing that grows super fast, um, that you can like watch it grow. But the amaryllis every day will have a little bit more and a little bit more, and it grows up to be this fascinating, beautiful plant because it's just like one or two big stalks, and at the top, these big, beautiful red flowers. And, and so we get them every year, and I get to watch sort of this plant sort of go through this process, this kind of slow growth process every year. And there's, there's such a picture in that, I think, of what actually Jesus is trying to get across to his people. Because all these parables coming up are all going to be, here's what the kingdom of heaven is like. Here's what the kingdom of God is like. Because Matthew often substitutes God in heaven as words because he's a good Jew and doesn't want to say Yahweh. And so he does these substitutes. He, he, he changes things around. And he, but he speaks of the kingdom. This is what God's reign and rule looks like. And, and he tells them different parables to, to, do with it, to do with that. But before we dive into them, we also have to have an expectation or understand the expectation that they had of what God's kingdom was actually supposed to be like. Because Jesus' crowds certainly have expectations of God's kingdom. And they're very messianic in, in terms of what they expect. And, and some of that's really based upon some Old Testament texts, legitimately, where the Messiah is going to come to show up. The Messiah is going to usher in this new age, this age to come where God will reign and rule, that he will set up shop in Jerusalem, uh, which was some of the connections to prophecies. He will reign from there. Israel will be restored as a nation. He won't have any oppressive nations outside of it. It will be restored, and um, God's shalom will ex- exist there, and even the nations will be blessed or to flood to it in that process. That's, that's what, what they expected. And there's different ways that people expect it to happen. Some thought it'd be through military conquests, that the Messiah would lead the military to overthrow Rome, kick Rome out of, out of town, and establish this wonderful kingdom that is uh, the Messiah's kingdom. There was a lot of that. Some thought it would come through spiritual reform. This is probably more the position of the Pharisees, that just through renewal and purity, we're going to get there, and the Messiah will help us get there. There's, there's all different perspectives, but it was very much, here's the age we're in. We don't, we don't like this age right now. The Messiah will come drive out Rome, and we will establish this true new age. And so you have this growing buzz around this rabbi who some are thinking of as the Messiah, but he hasn't formed an army. He hasn't, his disciples are a bunch of nobodies. He's going around healing people. He's healing even centurions and all this other stuff. He's got a tax collector as part of his posse. It's like, what, what, what's going on? What is your kingdom? <laughs> What is this going to look like, Jesus? Because this doesn't look exactly how we have expected it to look. And there's some of this expectations that I think Jesus will deal with as he tells a number of these parables, particularly the ones today. So I want to start in the middle because I think that helps us get to the outer um, stories. So let's start in the middle with the mustard seeds and wheat. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. So let's just say... If you were a Middle Eastern farmer, you would think this is hysterical, right? We don't, but they would. And to rephrase it, I'll rephrase it in a way that Southerners can speak about this. 
The kingdom of heaven is like someone who took the vine of the kudzu and decided to plant it into the middle of his garden. Okay? Is that a little more southern for us? Because the mustard plant, at least the Middle Eastern mustard plant, was not, was not a crop that they actually traditionally harvested. It's a weed. It's, and it's a weed that like, takes over places. It takes over fields. It takes over all sorts of places. It's noxious. It's invasive. And so at some point, the listener's like, who would plant a mustard seed in the middle of their crops? Like, that person's crazy. And, and here's a picture of the mustard weed. It, it, it's, it's pretty. It has lovely yellow flowers. It's not very big. It's probably about yay high. There's one other plant that church people eventually will be like, oh, yeah, that's the one they use because we needed Jesus to say the right things. But all history seems in context that this is what everybody called mustard. And, and so you had this weed that would take over places. And hear me, once the, once the mustard plant gets in, you cannot get it. You can't burn it out. You can't poison it out. Um, and its root system's complex. You can't just like dig it up. It is like nonstop. Once it started, you can't stop it. And then he goes on to say, it's the smallest of the seeds. For those who are worried about the literalism, Jesus is doing it proverbially. There are smaller seeds. It's no big deal. Um, some people are like, see, Bible's wrong. Um, I'm like, if that is your argument of what... But when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. So the second part, once again, people would be like, hold on, Jesus. What are you talking about? Like, this doesn't... Even the one that some people try to make into the mustard tree is like this mangy thing that gets about this. It's like a mangy bush. It is not a tree. There's no, there's no tree. There's no mustard tree that exists in the Middle East. And so there's this question. It's like, what is going on? Hardly enough for birds to nest in it. What's going on? Why would you say that, Jesus? So the birds in the air come and make nests in its branches. What? what? No, no, mustard doesn't do that. Okay, let's hold on to that. He told him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. All right, now outside of this parable, when we encounter leaven in scripture as like an analogy for something, is it good or is it bad? Bad. It's like consistently a bad thing. And so once again, it's like throwing his listeners for a little bit of loop. It's like the first one, you're like the kingdom of God. You almost expect like Jesus to be like, it's like a cedar of Lebanon. It's like a mighty oak that's, that's, that's just strong and taking over. Or it's like something that's not yeast. It's <laughs> something positive, something good. But he goes with this weird analogy. It says that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was leavened. Three measures. Does anybody who has a Bible open right now have another translation of three measures? If you don't, that's okay. There you go. That's super helpful. Sometimes I look it up and it's like, well, three measures is like one and a half pecks. I'm like, that doesn't help me at all. I don't even know what one and a half pecks look like. Um, but yeah, somewhere between 50 and 70 pounds will likely be the picture here. Which, hear me, we, we make bread quite regularly in my house. We might use 50 to 70 pounds throughout a whole year, let alone in one sitting to make, I don't even know how many loaves of bread that this would make. Like, this is so much flour in the story that you're like, what is going on? So... As I said last week, there's a little bit of a of Jew, Jewish hermeneutic interpretation method that, yes, looks at sort of the, the, the sort of surface level reading. And hear me, surface level's not bad. Actually, with these parables, surface level is going to be very, very rich. 
But then, particularly the things where you're like, that sounds odd, there's usually like a hidden Old Testament thing that just brings even more life to the story. So let's start with, with that, that first piece. So what are some of the things that we would learn from about the kingdom of heaven? If, if it's like this weed that takes over, if it's like this leavening that spreads throughout the flower, what do we learn? Did you say powerful? Is that what I heard? Yeah, yeah. There's no stopping it. Like, it is going to permeate everything. There's no stopping yeast. Once the yeast is in your bread, yeast is in your bread. Yeah, there's some grass roots. And so both stories, it's small things. Like, you can't even really see yeast. I mean, I know you have your, like, starter, but you can't see the yeast granules. Um, and and uh, same thing with the mustard seed. It's tiny. It's, like, super, super small. It can. Yeah, yeah. I think it, it has that sort of picture that can like overpower what does exist. And I think, I think that's an analogy that's certainly there, that the kingdom of God, because look, what are we going to see? We're going to see one of the mightiest empires that's ever existed in history that like to talk about peace a whole lot, but they did it by taxing everybody and keeping a boot on your neck. And what will the movement that becomes the church do to this kingdom that was as oppressive as can be is change it, bring it down in some ways. It'll overthrow Herod and his throne in Jerusalem as well. It's going to do mighty things. Yeah, I think there's a bunch of things. I think it's counterintuitive. I think we're surprised both times. We'll be like, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast. What? what? It's counterintuitive. It's, it's upside down. It's backwards. It's not what people expect. I think at times it'll be offensive. I think it's going to challenge, as we just said, certain things in the world. I think it begins small. As I said, seed, yeast, these are, these are small things. I think it has an unstoppableness to it. And lastly, it will be a blessing. That's what we actually see in what the tree becomes, that it will bless the birds and they'll be able to make their nest. But let's see. Anybody do their homework this past week? I kind of left you with a challenge of uh, sometimes when you read through it, asking, all right, what, what, what might be the cross-reference? What might be the deeper things here? Uh, it's vacation week. I'll give you guys a pass. Um, but there's a few of them. Um, one that I think people will immediately go to, at least for the mustard seed, is in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel actually has these wonderful parables and these images throughout the book. And one of them is originally about this bird that flies along, takes this piece of a tree, and then goes out. And, and the symbolism is it is Israel in captivity, that they are taken from their land, they're planted somewhere else, and they have to grow there. But in that, at the end of Ezekiel 17, God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take a twig, and I'm going to go plant it back in Jerusalem. And from there, it's going to grow into this mighty tree, and the birds are going to make their nests in it, and it's going to be a blessing. And, and the images of the animals throughout all of Ezekiel are like the nations. They're all the Gentiles. They're all the outsiders. It's super common through that book. And so the image that is left in Ezekiel is that this plant will grow up and become a blessing to all the nations. And so what I think Jesus is after is a little bit of that image. Because remember, these people have to memorize their Old Testaments. We don't. We just Bible gateway it. But they had to memorize it. And so they're going to hear this sort of imagery. And they be like, oh, the kingdom of God, yeah, it's like, it's like a mustard seed. It's counterintuitive. It's tiny. It's all these things. But, but what it's supposed to become is a blessing to all the Gentiles, which is not what they expected either. They expected him to set up shop. This is supposed to bless us, Jesus. That's what the Messiah is supposed to do. But it's supposed to be a blessing to all 
the outsiders, all the Gentiles. Remember, who is Matthew recording the story? An outsider, right? He has been written off by his people. And once again, telling the story. It's counterintuitive, yes. It's, it's offensive, it's small, it's unstoppable, and it will bless. Let's look at the flower one. Satan is also in Greek. It's the word seia. It's actually just a translation of seia. Now, they may encounter a story where a woman has done three seias, three large measures of flour in the Old Testament. It only exists once. Yeah, there we go. Good job, seminary student Noah. Um, oh, even better. Add a way to give credit where credit is due to Rebecca. Good job. Um, you don't need a seminary degree to do this. Um, yeah, there's a story. And it's, it's Sarah and Abraham in the Old Testament. And Abraham sees these three people, and he, he identifies them as three men. He doesn't identify, clearly that's the Lord or anything like that. And, and Sarah and Abraham get to work. I mean, they go all out for these three strangers, and they bake three, say, 60 pounds of flour for these three dudes who show up. They have choice of meat. They go over the top. And so perhaps even Jesus is saying, you know what the kingdom of heaven is like? You know that day that Abraham and Sarah made 60 pounds of flour for total strangers. Remember that day? That's, that's the kingdom of heaven. You want to see what God is doing in the world? You know that radical hospitality that I've actually called my people to be this whole time? That's what it looks like. It's counterintuitive. It's upside down. It's in some ways a small act, though certainly a lot of flour. But if my people were to do that, and do that everywhere... That's an, that's an unstoppable force. So let's personalize this. Let's bring this home so we're not thinking about 30, 60 pounds of flour that we have to go bake now. Um, but just because something is small doesn't mean that it can't become something big. Just because something's insignificant doesn't mean it's not germinating into something that truly is significant. Because remember, people of Jesus' time are really struggling with, I think, still the question of, God, where are you right now? Like, we're still under oppression. We, we haven't had a king in a united kingdom since Solomon. God, where are you? Our prophets have stopped speaking. We're suffering here. We, we don't hear from you. God, are you doing something? Even something small, are you doing it? And even though we can't see it, and even though they couldn't see it, we, we just don't know what God might be doing in the midst of it. But the kingdom of heaven sometimes is something even small. I feel like very Horton hears a who right there. Um, but something small. It reminds me of uh, Beethoven a little bit in the storyline. Because you've got to imagine, I mean, Beethoven is one of the, the, the most famous, right? Bach, Beethoven. We, we have our people that are like the famous Western composers. Now, if you don't know, Beethoven was deaf like half of his composition life. And some of the most famous compositions we know from Beethoven were actually composed while he was deaf, which is fascinating. That's how much of a genius this man really was. And so you had all this artistry, all this work that he created, he worked on, composed, all some famous stuff, and then became deaf, but kept composing, kept working, kept creating things of beauty, in the midst of his silence, and his death, he couldn't even hear sometimes the beauty of it. 
And so when we're in the moments where it's like, God, are you moving? Are you working? Am I having an impact? Is any of this happening? There's an invitation in. What does it look like to continue composing in the midst of the silence? To continue with even the small acts of hospitality, of blessing others, and perhaps not even seeing anything of significance, but continuing in it. That if you believe you are actually doing what God has called you to do, and you're not seeing maybe the impact or the fruit, you're not sure where God's kingdom actually is in the midst of it, but you continue to be faithful in day-to-day little things. And we do this because we have no idea what God might actually be doing. Because hear me, Jesus doesn't need you to be famous. He needs you to be faithful. That's what he's interested in. (laughs) It's faithful people. Now I think we're ready to hear the wheat and the weeds at the same time. He put together a parable, or put together, he put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man sowing good seed in his field. While the men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds appeared also, and the servant of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good wheat seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? They're almost surprised. Why are these weeds here? He said to him, The enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? They said, No, lest gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let them both grow until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn." Now, this imagery would be very familiar to them. Uh, actually, until kind of industrial age, there was a real struggle with um, what's called darnel seed that would grow up with your wheat. Um, it looks very similar. It sprouts very similarly. And really not until the, the heads produced their, their grain could you really tell the difference. And then even more cool biblical imagery, the grains, that, the, the true wheat grains actually bow down at that point. They sort of slump over, um, and the fake weeds actually stay upright, so it makes it really easy to harvest, And so, um, which is another beautiful image. But you, you have, in botany, a very practical thing that Jesus is teaching here. But what I think he's after is to help this audience to understand that um, really what's called eschatology, sort of the, the study of the end, the study of the future, of what's to come. And as I said, they had a very much idea that when a Messiah comes, that's, that's the shift. Everything will be restored, shalom, everything is exactly as God wants it to be. That's what the Messiah ushers, ushers in. John the Baptist was this guy. Like, from all we can understand from John the Baptist's language, the ax is at the tree, the, the thing's about to change, God's about to move in and set up shop, and we're going to be restored. Very, uh, what's called two-part eschatology. So there's the age that we're in, with all of its mess and brokenness, Messiah comes, everything is restored. Now, what Jesus, I think, is saying and conveying to these people is what's called more a three-part eschatology. That there's the age that is now, but that age is not just going to end when the Messiah comes. But this, the Messiah is ushering in this new age and his kingdom and his rule but those ages are going to have an overlap. That I know you expected, Israel, that I'm coming to, to just... And hear me, this is still, to this day, a, a big stumbling block for most of my Jewish friends, is, well, if Jesus was the Messiah, why is there not the peace that we expect? Why, why has the kingdom not been restored as we expect it to be? And because Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 I need you to understand. These two worlds, 
He's the, 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 the seed of the wheat, all, everything that is true of the kingdom is going to exist in the same spaces as the mess of this world, and even within his, his people, his believers. Because, once again, the analogy is actually things that look very similar growing up together. And so there's this beautiful picture. So uh, they left the crowds, went to the house. Disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And he answered, the one who sows the seed, good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned up with fire, so will the end of the age be. The Son of Man will send his angels, will gather out of his kingdom and all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. And so he pulls them off into private somewhere and starts explaining it. Now Jesus goes through identifying every variable in the story, pretty much. And, and so... He's like, hey, the, the, the sower of the good seed, that's the Son of Man, which is, a, a, I think here, a Daniel reference uh, to this one who's going to come, uh, who is Jesus. The fields of the world, good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, bad seed are the so, is the sower, the devil, bad seed itself are the sons of the evil one, harvest is the end of the age, harvesters are angels, great. He goes through the process of identifying all the variables. I'm not sure how much he actually explains the parable. Um, he actually just takes the very, very end of the parable and just adds a bunch to it and a bunch of stuff that actually doesn't totally pertain to us. It's like, and at the end of the age, God's going to do all this kind of stuff. Cool. I'm glad God's going to do all that kind of stuff. What, what does that mean for me in the kingdom right now? And I think that's the struggle. And, and yes, we have, this, we have this picture. And yes, God's going to make everything right. Evil is going to be done away with. And that is good news. We should celebrate that. But, but what about me? Is this parable just about hell and the afterlife? And I'm not going to do a whole sermon on hell again. But is it just about that? Because it's really easy to focus on the judgment part of Jesus' explanation. But I think we miss what the actual parable and most of the text of the parable was actually pointing to which is like the, the, these servants coming along. They, you don't want us to gather them? He said, no, less than gathering the weeds, you root up wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. As if the, the, the teaching, the, the drive home, here's what you do with it is leave the weeds and the wheat judgments to God. He's saying, I will deal with that. That's not your job. It's not your job because it's not time yet. And even when it's time, it's still not your job. Because you can't tell. You, my, my servants, do not have perspective that is needed. And hear me, you may get it right sometimes. You may even get it right most of the time. But you're also going to get it wrong of telling well, who is a son of the kingdom and who isn't. And you may pull up wheat that you think is a weed and you're not capable of doing this work and so what are we supposed to learn about the kingdom? That I would argue that when you find it, I think this is a really good first application, it is never this pure, unblemished, unadulterated picture of the kingdom. Right? I think sometimes we like to talk about the church as like a reflection of the kingdom of God. Hear me. It's also a reflection of this story, where the weeds are here with the wheat. So that's part of the life of the church. And hear me. 
I am, I am extremely sympathetic to people that are walking through deconstruction. I've gone through my own process related to that quite a bit, and I get it. I think people have been really wounded by the church, all this kind of stuff. But I also want to temper at times an, an idealism about what church is and is not. Because guess what? There, there's weeds here. <laughs> and, and, and the enemy has sown them here because he wants to mess with God's crops. And it's going to happen. And someone here is going, if you're here long enough, someone is going to make you mad. Someone's going to offend you. Someone's going to let you down. It's going to happen. I hope it's less than the world. That's my hope. Because you go out there and that's, that's going to happen too. And my hope is that we have some realism. I think uh, Bonhoeffer talks about idealism being one of the biggest enemies to community because it causes us to think that there's this super standard that as sinful believers we're just not going to hit. Next is that we don't go weeding. Now hear me. There is room for discernment. There's a right place. That doesn't mean that we just don't care about whatever, anything's going on. That, that there's still a, a good judgment of what is good and true and right, what is light versus dark, what is uh, of God and what is not. There's, there's still room uh, for good fruit, bad fruit, those kind of conversations. But as much as I want to nuance that all, <laughs> I think we have to grapple with the fact that Jesus just said that in his kingdom we will have weeds and they are not our responsibility. God says it's his responsibility. And he will deal with it at harvest time. And if I were to deal with it right now, it's going to screw up the harvest. And so we have to be careful not to do the work that God hasn't actually given us to do. And so it's like Chris, then. Chris, you can't quote Rob Bell. You can't quote John MacArthur. You can't quote Richard Rohr. You can't quote Mark Driscoll. That person is obviously a weed. Is it? How do I make that call? Now, of course, we want to think critically. Like, let me just say it. Rob Bell has a lot of really good things to say. He also has stuff that I very much disagree with. Is he saved? I don't know. But God told me that's not my job to, to call that. John MacArthur, plenty of things that I'm going to agree with. Some things I'm not at all. Okay? Is he saved? It's not my call. I see some fruit in, in various people. Point to those kind of things, which is good. But, but it's not my job to call that. And we love, we love to categorize. We love to put people into wheat and weeds, so it's really easy to, to black and white everything in this world. We love control and wielding of that power, right? Women preachers, obviously weeds. Christian nationalist author, it's clearly a weed, right? Progressive Christian podcaster, definitely a weed, no matter what. <laughs> right? Megachurch fundamentalist, no doubt, a weed. But Jesus just said, stay in your lane. It's not your job. And hear me, that makes church life so messy. <laughs> it just does. Light and darkness in the same places. And there's room for discernment of what is light and what is dark. But we never know when something might look like a weed that turns out to be a weed. 
When given the right sunlight, time, fertilizer, water, you never know what could happen. It could turn into something good. We're simply instructed to seek first the kingdom. Pursue the things of the kingdom. Invite people into that all along. And we might be surprised by the time the story is over who is actually a part of it and who is not. Because you've got to imagine Matthew, when he first starts following this ragtag bunch of guys, a bunch of people being like, who is this weed? He doesn't belong here. He doesn't understand our code. He doesn't understand our mannerisms. He doesn't behave the way we do. And if the disciples did the job of weeding him out, where would we be? We'd have one less gospel. And so, that we let Jesus do this work. I hear the good news of that, too. The good news of the kingdom is that those of us that, at some point, we're all kind of the weeds. And Jesus can take us and turn us into wheat. That Jesus takes one thing and turns it to another. He takes an old creation and turns it to a new. He takes old things and makes them new. Makes us as new creations. And by his death, by his son, or by, by the son, by his death on the cross, that is what accomplishes it for us. The ability to take this old age full of death and weeds and start creating something new with life. So let's step into this upside-down kingdom life. It's sometimes small, oh, but it's unstoppable. Look at it. It's taken over this planet. It's sometimes in blessings, and sometimes it's challenging the world order, right? Standing different or distinct from it. Like, when the church has failed at that, it's a problem. When the 1930s rolled around and the church in Germany didn't become the obnoxious weed that it was supposed to be, what do we end up with? But Hitler. When slavery was in America and the church did not become the obnoxious weed to say, this is unjust, this should not happen, these people are created in the image of God, this system of economy needs to change. If the church didn't do it, even the last... 50 years, when redlining was happening, when segregation was happening, the church should have stood up in the midst of that and knock on, hey, this neighborhood's changing, we're going to move to the suburbs. Which happened way too often here in Atlanta. Instead of gone, hey, social injustice matters. Economic injustice matters. We're going to stay and be a part of the solution with our, with our black and brown brothers and sisters who are moving into our neighborhoods. But the church didn't do it. And now most of the world looks on the church and be like, look, they're part of the problem. We've got to be that weed, stubborn. But we have a king who's just not like this world. A suffering Messiah who would have a shameful death on a cross. Say, the coronation of the king was a bloody cross on the outskirts of town. This is our king. And he ushers in an upside-down, unexpected kingdom. Everyone expected an Alexander the Great. Everybody expected a Caesar. Everyone expected these people of tremendous power to just reign and rule in those ways. Israel just wanted it for themselves. And Jesus came in saying, that's not what I've come to do. 
And may we see that kingdom upside down as well. So in parable fashion, in the nature of these parables, in the ways that Jesus kind of leaves things kind of hanging, as our reflection time, instead of sort of walking through different prayer sections, I'm just going to tell us a parable. And I'll let us sit with it on the back end, and then um, we'll continue to set up communion and worship through song. But I just want to leave you with this parable. I'm not going to explain all the points of it. I'm not going to give you all the details. I just want us to think about how this is like the kingdom of God as well. Just before the outbreak of the First World War, Jean Giono went on a walk through the Alps, the foothills of the Alps. At this point in history, the region had become quite barren and desert-like. The villages had been deserted. The people had moved away. People that were left were just people that scraped by to survive. On the third day of his walk, Jean ran out of water, and he went to one of these mostly abandoned villages, and the only person he could find there was this old shepherd. He virtually said nothing, but offered Jean water and invited him into the house for supper that night. The shepherd lived alone with his dog and with his sheep. His name was Elziard Bouffier. And that evening, Jean noticed the shepherd doing something peculiar. He was sorting through all these acorns, just kind of picking out the best of every acorn. The next day, Jean followed him through the foothills from a little bit of a distance and saw the shepherd leave his sheep down at the, the base and make his way up into the foothills. And they saw him take his staff, stick it in the ground a little bit, drop an acorn. Take the staff, stick it in the ground a little bit, drop an acorn. He must have done 100 acorns. Later, Jean asked the shepherd what he was doing and why. He was planting trees. Good job. He was. For three years, he had been planting trees in this solitary way. He had planted, as he says, 100,000 trees. He had owned this farm in the plains. He'd lived there most of his life, but the rivers had dried up. The plains had become dry, and he thought, maybe this will be the solution. He had lost his only son. He had lost his wife. And he retired in solitude to do this task. Well, the First World War came, and Jean went off to fight and forgot about the shepherd until he returned for another walk many years later. By now, it's the 1920s, and there's a forest of saplings that had risen up all over the area, stretching for eight miles. Jean actually notices that the rivers had sort of, that were dried up had started flowing again. The water reappeared, and so did the willows, so did flowers and meadows. Bouffier was still alone, even more silent now. He hardly said a word, and he and Jean walked together through the forest. By 1935, the forest uh, officials had actually noticed that, that the, the, the trees were back and actually just assumed it had happened spontaneously. The Second World War came. Jean visited the shepherd for the last time after the war in 1945. An area that was once barren, was once desolate, was verdant. People were returning to the villages. They were restoring houses. They created fountains in their little squares. 
the land became a forest where now they were even cultivating crops again. In years that followed the Second World War, more people moved to the area, more life came. It became an attractive place to live, to bring up children, and the people prospered there. And no one but Jean Giono ever knew that Elzier Bouffier did it all. So I want to leave us with that for a moment, and then we'll move into communion and prayer.